That's just what we need now. Some sensational story in the papers making these boys out to be superheroes, triumphing over evil. Let me squash the rumors now. These two are not heroes. To all we know is what we found out from the neighbors. And the general consensus is they're angels. But angels don't kill. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. This was no gangland assassination. No creative. It was way too sloppy. Something went wrong here. This has personal written all over it. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing The Boondock Saints. Starring Sean Patrick Flannery. Station men, loving families. They go home every day after work. When they turn on the news, you know what they see? They see rapists and murders and child molesters everywhere. Everyone thinks the same thing. That someone should just go kill those motherfuckers. Norman Reedus. Sort of like 7-Eleven. We're not always doing business. We're always home. Billy Connolly. The question is not how far. The question is, do you possess the Constitution? The depth of faith. To go as far as his need. And Willem Dafoe. All the low lives in quiet city Boston start dropping dead, and you think it's unrelated. Greenlee, the day I want the Boston police to do my thinking for me, I will have a fucking tag on my toe. Now get me a squad car and get me over there. Directed by Troy Duffy. You will witness what happens here today, and you will tell of it later. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Listen, boys, I got some very bad news. I'm gonna have to close down the bar. Fuck ass! <laughs> it's Patrick in college. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the nineties are killing me. It's Devlin in London. Looks like we got us a cowboy. It's Matt in South Korea. I'll have a coke. It's David in Norwich. Sorry uh, for that. Sorry to our Irish listeners. I think there might be a little bit of that, but I'm going to claim I get away with it because my name is Patrick. And um, you'll have noticed that I am your host today. Fortunately, Gally cannot be with us. It's his mother's birthday, so many happy returns to Gally's mother. And the eagle-eared viewers, uh, listeners even, will have noticed we have David joining us from Norwich. And no, it's not David Tennant. It's my good friend Biggins from school. Hello. Hello, mate. Introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Uh, sure. Um, so I, I, I don't have any wonderful claims to film. I did a film degree in, in Norwich uh, at the University of East Anglia. I was a background artist on King Arthur, uh, the Guy Ritchie film, and fulfilled a life ambition of starring in the film with Jude Law. <laughs> I wonder how you got that role, Biggins. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> eternally grateful. Eternally grateful. Um, and I'm the 2019 Fantasy Film League World Champion. Uh, but other than that, I work in digital marketing. Welcome, welcome, and thank you for coming on to the show. Uh, yeah, nice to have you, man. Yeah, welcome. What, what was the uh, beard situation on King Arthur, Biggins? So that was, a, that was the first time I'd grown a beard at all in my life. Um, so I, what was it? We, we caught up uh, one, one Christmas time. And I just sort of let my beard go a little bit. It was probably at the I told him I told him to grow a beard because it was King Arthur and he's got to have a beard. Facial is really important. So yeah, I, I kept 
it growing and growing and it it was probably about i think 14 months that it was growing and it it, it got to the point where <laughs> people were were saying it's a bit zz top um and you know i i suffered it i i wanted to be in a film with with jude law so you know i'll have this ridiculous beard um and when it came to um the uh, the costume check they took me you guys know they 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 bring you in a, a month before filming and just sort of the, the see, fitting, see, yeah, the fitting. They see what you look like and they they put all these these sort of different robes and try to sort of say, do do we need to put a wig on this guy? Blah 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 blah. They looked at the beard and were like, it's, it's a bit too long. Yeah, no, <laughs> just cut that back a little. No, not too short, but definitely more than half the length. Up. It's like. I, I've, I've just had this beard for over a year and it's, you know, it's been a talking point, but oh well, it's fine. You got paid, so I got it was paid. all fine. Yeah, being an extra is awesome. It's so much um, fun. Supporting artist, thank you, Biggins. Oh, artist. A, a background artist I was at the background time. Background artist. I, yeah, I played How was Jude Law? Was he everything you uh, dreamed of? I got to throw polystyrene uh, rocks at Jude Law and call him all sorts of swear words. I, great fun. Absolutely great. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was quite fun looking for you and Andy on the trailer. Like, there he is. This little speck on the screen, <laughs> which, is, which is great. And uh, today we're talking about 1999's The Boondock Saints. This is, uh, because Biggins is our guest today, this is Biggins' film, although it was kind of more of a collaborative choice between himself and I. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about why we're talking about Boondock Saints today, Biggins, and your history, like first encounter with the film? Sure. I mean, so I, I think this was, was probably my first experience of a, a cult film in the sense that I, I guess I was part of the cult. So it was very much an underground film. So it's not something that I saw in, in Blockbuster, which is where I pick up most of my films. It's not something I saw on film four. It was not something that was shown on TV. It's not something I saw at the cinema. I'd seen no marketing for this film whatsoever. It came to me because one of uh, my friends, um, who I'll, I'll, I'll keep him nameless because of some nefarious activity, but essentially he was obsessed <laughs> with Napster. And he, he was kind of the, the first person that, that introduced me to Napster and sort of what you can download and blah, blah, blah. And this was a film that he had downloaded from Napster and he had put on a CD. So he was kind of sharing it about the class, this, this awesome action film. And it was a, around the time that sort of people were talking a, about Pulp Fiction and, and no one really kind of understood why Pulp Fiction was good beyond the fact it was cool. So the, it was it was given to me on CD. I think maybe two or three other guys had had it before. So it was a slightly worn CD. And we... Sloppy seconds. Well, yeah, thirds, fourth. Um <laughs> So because it was on CD, we had to watch it through a computer. But we didn't want to watch it on our, our old square monitor. So we physically took the desktop down to our living room and we wired it up to the um, the TV. And uh, we, we watched the Boondock Saints having no idea really what we were in for. It was more sort of, we were told, cool assassin film, Billy Connolly's in it. <laughs> um, and it was, I mean, for, I mean, I guess I was about 
13 or 14. Really? I thought it was a bit old. Well, I thought I was a bit older, but I, I think, think I you, watched it. I might have after. recommended it a bit after that. Because as I say, okay. it, I don't think I'd have given you the CD or anything along those lines. It might just have been a little bit after that that I will have said, you heard of the Boondock Saints? You've not heard of the Boondock Saints? Right, you've got to see the Boondock Saints. <laughs> I mean, by that point, I probably would have had it on DVD. This was this was kind of just before DVDs, really. As I say, oh, yeah. I, it, it was it was CD. It was Napster time, so um, it, it was. You must was, have been up all night downloading that on on Napster. I mean, be, that's a few days, isn't it? it? It wasn't me that downloaded it. It was my friend that downloaded it. But yeah, right, it right. They took him a lot. Actually, actually, no. He was one of the first people that had cable, so that's why he was able to get these things. I was still on dial-up, and he he would have yeah. a cable, so he would he'd be ah, able to okay. sort of get access to all these these bits and pieces. And it was it was one because it was a little bit naughty i haven't paid for the film but also the fact it's it's so sort of bad taste and it's it's sort of it's got your violence it's got your your, your, it's everything about it is so gritty and turned up to 11 that for a 14 year old boy it's just you know it's a really cool experience and it is a cool film i mean it's got sort of style to it that you 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 might not see in uh, other more cinematic releases at the time. Mainly because the director probably didn't know exactly what he was doing, so there's something well, madcap about it. But well, well, Biggins, we'll get to more about what sure. the director's style and and what he was thinking as well. But yeah, for me, guys, this is where uh, my first impression of it came because of Biggins he recommended it to me, and I think I was about sixteen. Uh, maybe a little bit older and I I swear I remember you giving me it as well and watching it and coming back into like sixth form college or something like yeah that was cool that was great great that kind of film very of its time late 90s because um, I, I don't know maybe I uh, <laughs> I wrote down that I kind of compared it to the matrix with this like techno action and yeah. leather jackets and sunglasses and slow-mo and cool stuff um the soundtrack, and... the soundtrack totally reminds me of the matrix i probably did lend it to you but hold, hold on biggins hold on sure. hold on this is where we're getting too far ahead of ourselves because i want to hear what devlin and matt because i think you guys have only just seen it right uh yeah uh a couple of days ago first time i um but I, I was aware of the film for a long time because um the documentary overnight was a big hit with all of us i think back in like early film school time it came up basically our first year of, of film school ish around that sort of time 2004 i guess um in an era where there was a couple of documentaries of the type i was i was talking to um a friend of mine i was recommending overnight because of uh having rewatched it for, for this podcast. And uh, he said, is it anything like Dig, the film about the Brian Jonestown massacre? Uh, <laughs> oh, I love Dig. As, uh, it's kind of similar. There was a, a few of these kind of um, crash and burn documentaries in, uh, in, a, in a sort of in a short burst. But um, so I loved uh, Overnight and uh, watched it a couple of times at film school. Uh, arbitrarily, for, for no reason I can think of, rebought the DVD recently because uh, I wanted to show it to my partner. And... Uh, very insultingly for Troy Duffy, uh, it's big DVD case overnight, and then crammed into the bottom one tenth of the cover is DVD extras, The Boondock Saints. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Just toss the film on as an as an extra, 
so I'd never seen it until this week because I, I loved the documentary, but never felt that compelled to watch the actual film itself. So um, is that the same for you, Matt? Yeah, very similar. I had two reference points for this one. Uh, the first one was my old uni housemate, uh, Ed Desch. And uh, number two was Overnight. So uh, I lived with Ed um, at Kirkstall Brewery in Leeds. We were, hey. we were ha- And we were housemates in Headingley. And uh, this was his favorite film of all time. And he would constantly badger me about watching Boondock Saints. And I still hadn't seen it up until the... Uh, the lead up to this podcast. So um sorry, Ed, it took so long, but finally we got there. Um <laughs> Most of my familiarity came with, with overnight, same as Dev and uh th- this success of a director that I hadn't heard of, uh, the transformation of a doorman and bar owner to an indie film darling and a Hollywood player. Um it was kind of akin to some of the Robert Rodriguez stuff that I was into. Um, you know, this idea that a working class guy can break into Hollywood with this youthful kind of exuberance. And, uh, he had a very cocky nineties swagger about him, uh, unlike Rodriguez. He was a bit more earnest with it all. Um, but yeah, I'd, I've seen the film uh, overnight probably five times or more. And I always watch it in the lead up to, to making a film along with, uh, documentaries, like the ill-fated stuff, like, uh, Lost in La Mancha and, and things like that. I always watch, uh, and, uh, Hearts of Darkness. I always watch like chaotic ones before I make a film just to try and, I don't know, get, get some confidence somehow or, or prepare for all the, all the things that could go wrong or at least see other people that struggled with the same, the same stuff, the same stuff. So yeah, they're, they're my two reference points, Patrick. I, I hadn't heard of, Overnight till oh, really? we, we started this and we started chatting about it. And I bought the same DVD you got, Devlin, with the, yeah. <laughs> the insulting corner. It's a double disc thing I got. Did you see that the, the designer hadn't even bothered to, <laughs> to change the color of the Boondock Saints logo? So you <laughs> yeah. can't even read the words of the Boondock because it's in red on dark red. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> shoddy treatment and if you'll notice it says uh includes the film that started the whole sorry affair (laughs) (laughs) oh that's (laughs) well i mean right now this is mine and biggins first impression was quite positive from when we were younger certainly but let's keep our sandwiches in our in our lunch boxes biggins for as long as possible and let's see at the end if we still recommend it upon rewatch as an adult although just as another kind of encounter i have this film is um, Biggins, uh, no, Devlin, you said like this is the kind of film you watch at 3 a.m. like when you're drunk. I did that exact thing last January and I text Biggins at like 4 a.m. like Boondock Saints, yeah. Um, <laughs> watching it really drunk and I'd kind of have forgotten about that encounter <laughs> and now I'm watching it sober, uh, ready for this in, in this, um, podcast state of mind was a, was a kind of a, a different affair. But, um, so why don't we talk about Overnight? Um, Biggins hasn't seen it, but Overnight gives quite, um, for anyone who's interested in the background of this film, because it is that notoriety kind of documentary about how, uh, Troy Duffy got this film made. And yeah, I watched it the first time the other night and I'm just going to say it. Troy Duffy's a bit of a. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much the takeaway from that film, isn't it? (laughs) But it's um 
it was a, an era in in film history that I have always been a bit fascinated by. I guess because it was like our generation, like Matt. I think you've, you've mentioned this a few times as well. Like people who were not that much older than us breaking in, often with little experience, or at least t- to the general public, seeming like they have little experience. So it feel it made it feel really accessible. There's a great book by Peter Biskin called um. Oh fuck! So he's he's got two. One is uh, Easy Riders Raging Balls, which is about the new Hollywood. I just bought that book. Brilliant, um, <laughs> and uh, it's really gossipy and bitchy and marvelous. And then he did a follow up called Down and Dirty Pictures, which is about the kind of the, the Miramax era. And uh, this is just so firmly in that wheelhouse. Like it's so inside baseball in some ways about you know the mechanics of like getting your script bought and um, I I just uh, I, was, I was fascinated by this. It literally is a guy who was handed, not handed, I mean, he did write a script, but he was given the opportunity that most people would just absolutely fall on in such a tremendous, it wasn't just that he was given a film deal. He was also, uh, him and his, and his terrible jock rock band were given a, uh, a recording contract with Maverick Records without even having to meet an executive. It was a, an insane amount of like just hype and, and bluster around this, this guy. And it turns out that he couldn't hack it because he was a raging narcissist who was actually not that talented. There's some terrific quotes. I've got a few here. My fav- One of my favorite lines from the film is when uh, they're watching... Uh, this is overnight, yeah, Matt? This is overnight first, yeah. yeah. They're watching something on TV and he goes, who is this? He goes, uh, someone, someone <laughs> yeah. goes, uh, someone goes, it's, it's Jerry Bruckheimer. And he goes, uh, and he goes, Jerry Bruckheimer, can't fucking air. And then he just shakes his head and he, he can't believe what he's seeing. Like, um, he's got these delusions of grandeur. I quite like Conair, but you know, it is ridiculous in its own way. And there's another one where he's talking about, uh, casting and somebody's thrown John Bon Jovi's name into the hat for some strange reason. And he goes, John Bon Jovi. I didn't even know that cat was an actor. <laughs> uh, so between, between those two, and there's another one where he's talking about, um, he's ranting and raving about how amazing he is. And he's, uh, he's going to go straight to the top. And uh, he's talking about banging strippers to get cheese sandwiches, whatever <laughs> that means. And uh, the, the weird thing about Overnight is in the background of shots, there, there's always a member of his band or a member of his family kind of uh roger ebert tapped into this one like it's it's really interesting to watch the people around him um ebert didn't review boondock saints as far as i know he reviewed the second one yeah but he, so he reviewed it overnight yeah and uh he, he he'd say pay attention to the people surrounding troy duffy because that's the revealing thing the bandmates mm. and the family um, they've been listening so, to this crap for years and years and now yeah. it's like it's just been plugged into the mains and he's just completely loose he's vindicated every terrible massive inflated opinion of himself his brother and seems to visibly despise him in that yeah. documentary well I, I wrote down uh all this oasis stuff because there's a lot of sort of 90s cocaine confidence going on and there's, mm. there's a very gallagher brother thing between the two of them um, he, he's wandering around with, uh, with dungarees and no shirt and he looks like a, a giant baby at the time. <laughs> and, um, it's so, the same so, dungarees yeah. he wears in, in the Boondock Saints at the bar fight, isn't yeah. it? He is. He's got a cameo in that bar scene where, where he, uh, does he fight someone? He smacks somebody. He fights, he shouts and with the long haired dude from the brood yeah. as well. There's one other thing that was quite revealing. Uh, there's a scene with him and his mother 
and he's talking to his mum about the Sean Penn film, uh, Dead Man Walking. And he says to his mum, what do you think should happen at the end? And she says, oh, I'm conflicted, you know. And, and he says, uh, he jumps down her throat about it and he's, he's very clean cut about everything. He's not on the fence about anything at all. So he's, uh, he's very pro capital punishment. You know, this guy should be punished, um, with death. Um, it's not clean cut for most people, but it is to Duffy. And I think a lot of that bleeds into the script initially and then the, the mm. eventually the film, which we'll probably get to. You know, even I, a couple of things from me. Well, one is, um, I can't believe how much he slags off Keanu Reeves, which will be mm. much to the dismay of, uh, um, at Verbal Diorama, our good friend. She will not be best pleased, but it, just the, the gall of him to like, I don't know. How, how has this chancer got in the room with people like Jeff Goldblum, Mark Warburg, and just, I don't understand it. The way he slagged off film students as putrid and very insulting, yet he thinks he's top dog because he's written a script that Harvey Weinstein wanted to option. And how, how much do you think it's got, got to do with uh, Miramax publicity, the whole Harvey and uh, how much do you think it, it was a, a genuine offer? And uh, how much do you think it was intended to just get in the the, the papers and uh, get some publicity for Miramax? But not that they needed it. I mean, they, they just had Goodwill Hunting. They don't really need any more, do they, at this point? Apparently, but, the film was actually a new line, which is bizarre yeah, was, to me. Uh, that, like Bob two Shea, wasn't it? Sets of, of, yeah, two separate sets of script readers picked this one up. And apparently, it was a, there was a, an offer on the table at New Line. So Harvey Weinstein, apparently, that was... There was a real battle for supremacy between these mini major studios. So, you know, for him, like 300 grand is a bit of chicken feed, really. So, yeah. <laughs> mm. the, but the whole idea the, of buying the bar for him and, yeah. uh, strange, kind of, isn't it? He'd look at him, looking at him like a son and, uh, and I don't really know what happened there. It, it was, it seemed really peculiar that he had so much attention and then it, he, he was ghosted and, and what the reasoning behind that was. Was it the film falling through or was there something else at, at work? It's not one because Harvey Weinstein, he said, Troy is a unique, exciting new voice in American movies, and we are thrilled that he has come on board to make this project at Miramax. And it, I, is it a rags to riches thing that they held on to? This bar guy who is kind of likable in his own community, he's written a script that, you know, may have recalled and reminded of young filmmakers in the 90s like Tarantino and Rodriguez from a script making point of view that was something quite daring. But, and I don't know, had potential, but, and then just realized that he was a not, you know, like a knob, a full on knobhead who <laughs> uh, left a shitty voicemail for Kenneth Branagh on the phone. And <laughs> uh, I, I watched, got slammed it, well. slammed, you know, and just, I suppose it is a, an example of in Hollywood. You've got to treat people right and communicate properly if you're not a big dick. And I think he pissed a lot of people off. So I, th- I do think, Matt, it was a little bit genuine to start with. But then people start to realise what a narcissist and what an idiot he is to then take that away. And then, you know, but the script's still out there. The script's a script and still has potential. Um, funnily enough, I watched it overnight with subtitles on because I was quite tired after work and I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. There's a great bit when they're, <laughs> they're shooting Paul at a bar and the subtitle is inaudible noise that you can hear. And the subtitles just says, men banter. <laughs> Accurate. Yeah. So I've obviously not not seen it, 
but um, it, you're reminding me of Fire Festival, you know, um, a, a little bit, it just in terms of how everyone is buying what this narcissist, this guy is saying. And when you're um, wondering, well, why, why did they um, give his band a contract? Why did they buy his bar? I bet when Troy Duffy walked into a room with anyone, he was only talking about his bar or he was only talking about his band. And the, the, there's a certain kind of, when you've got that bravado and you don't know them well enough to know that they are a dick, there's probably some charisma there. They probably did genuinely like this force of nature and they were just sort of compelled by him. Wow, written a script. Wow, he's so passionate about his band. Wow, he loves, you know, he's working as a bar. Let's buy this, you know. And I, I, I obviously I don't know, I haven't seen it, but I just wonder if there's that kind of factor there. The fact that he sort of muscled into the room talking about himself and how wonderful all these things are. And if you don't know that he's a total narcissist, you're going to believe it. Until and it realize, is that begins. Yeah. He's very yeah. self-aggrandizing and it is. I, I've written down in my notes here this kind of Boston sensibility. I think Boston has a, a, a kind of history and an idea that the small town chap in Boston can make it big, especially within their own community, that big fish kind of mentality. And Troy Duffy is certainly one of those. It's just... I, I, the way he dismisses like people who've actually learnt how films are made and how it's done properly is that's the narcissistic element that Dev mentioned is referring to, and it's it's unforgivable. There was one other potential explanation. Uh, there's Meryl Poster at Miramax, who was a female executive, I think, and apparently she's one of the ones who took a disliking yeah. to him. And, she was one of the top uh, ten most powerful women in Hollywood at the time. I think so. And that's when it sort of went into turnaround. It was, it was some point there. So it could have been, you know, a misogyny thing. Somebody may have just seen how he was acting and, and thought this guy doesn't deserve what he's getting and we're going to pull the plug on him. So who, who knows? Is there a reason you haven't watched it, Biggins? Is it because you want to, to not, not to, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know. Distance yourself from the Boondock Saints. If, if you have a love of the Boondock Saints, is there anything that you've been kind of holding back on as far as watching overnight, or um, is it just a coincidence? So I, I, I think it was more um, accessibility. Um, so whenever I've kind of looked for it in the past, it's not on Netflix. It's not on Prime. It's not right. available in the UK on DVD. So if I was to get it, I'd have to get an American import. And I guess there's just other things that I, I've uh, wanted to get. I also, I also know the story. Everything that you've just said is not, I'm not like, oh my God, this guy, <laughs> you know? It's, mm. I, I, I know. Mm. It's, it's, it's on the commentary it's, and things like yeah, that too, yeah. this, these stories. Um, and I, I have seen Boondock Saints too, and I know why it took so long for the production trouble. So because I knew the story already, it's like, do I want to spend a lot of money getting an import? And I, I yeah. the thing, you, you all, you've all sold it to me. It sounds wonderful because I do like watching train yeah. wrecks. Um, but in, <laughs> Billy Connolly loves the man in the audio commentary. Mm. He loves the fact that, that this guy does not have any of his emotions internally. He has himself completely outside of his skin. So you know exactly what he's thinking. You know exactly where he stands. And Billy, Billy Connolly just responded to that completely. It was his sort of guy. Absolutely. And, and Billy Connolly, um, was also, to a certain extent, so flattered, which is what narcissists can do. This guy invited him over to a bar, drinking with his friends, 
told how brilliant he was, she was told how he was perfect for this part. And Billy Connolly would never normally get asked to play a heavy and get to play with guns and squibs exploding around him. And it, 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 a lot of, um, say, Billy Connolly one day was just sort of sitting in his trailer smoking a cigar, and Troy Duffy said, I love the cigar. We're bringing the cigar into this film. And Billy Connolly had never had that experience on a set before, where it, it was just sort of, he sees an idea, he goes for an idea. And again, there's this whole kind of flattery process with Billy Connolly. So some people did really respond to him because, I mean, I, I guess it's just, there would be no reason why um, Troy Duffy would say a word against Billy Connolly. And therefore, if you're on his good side, I imagine he can be a really flattering, engaging individual. But if you're not on his good side or you just don't have that vibe, then, oh boy, uh, from the sound of things. But there's a, there's a point in the in the doc where he, he literally bullies a film student. He's at Boston University. This is after the film has come out and it's not gone particularly well and he's at Boston University in a big uh, amphitheater and he's he's using this as an opportunity to basically tell these kids you're fucked it's not going to happen for you uh look at me and, then, and I'm brilliant and then he's somebody asks the question he snaps back at her and he's saying like basically it's just it's not going to happen I can tell that you're all looking at me and you're not believing me. And he finds like one kid in the front who looks like the nerdy little brother of every member of at the drive-in. And he's like, you specifically are not going to listen to me. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> it's, um, I think, uh, when you were saying that, uh, that the film probably got like, uh, run aground by, um, the Miramax exec who took a dislike. One of the stories that I heard from the co-director, Tony Montana, don't genuinely yeah. believe that's his real name. <laughs> Who, by the way, used to be a wrestling manager in the local Chicago area. He was the manager of Abdullah the Butcher, a man who infamously stabs his own forehead with forks. Um, oh. But he tells a story that he says didn't make the final edit of the documentary, which you do see in the documentary, uh, Troy Duffy talking about how much he wants to talk to uh, Ewan McGregor. Oh, yeah. And he says that they're going to have a Scots Irish love affair. <laughs> because <laughs> he is convinced he is Irish. And um, instead, apparently what happened is that they did go out. Uh, first of all, Ewan McGregor was not especially interested in getting pissed with him. And according to uh, my partner, who is a Ewan McGregor expert, uh, apparently Ewan McGregor was a big drinker at the time. He just didn't like the dude. And then uh, eventually they ended up getting into almost a full-blown fist fight about the death penalty. Wow. Ah, dead man walking again. Dead man walking. And then, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, apparently, I mean, obviously everyone was quite high on you, McGregor at the time. And this is where it's like, you make the wrong enemies. If Harvey Weinstein has to choose between a relationship with this dude who might be shit and a relationship with you and McGregor, he sides with you and McGregor. Right. Well, well, overnight pretty much ends begins with Troy Duffy saying, I think it's one of the best independent films of all time. Um, so why don't we get into the film? Uh, if you could. Because I believe you've got a synopsis for us, if you'd like to read that out. And then let's discuss the Boondock Saints. While out celebrating St. Paddy's Day, the happy-go-lucky Irish McManus brothers, Connor and Murphy, Sean Patrick Flannery and Norman Reedus, get involved in a raucous bar fight with some large Russians. Mafia heavies who've been muscling in on their favourite barkeep. They make light work of the Russians, humiliating one by setting his backside on fire. All hell breaks loose when two of the Russians, one with his body bandaged, kick down the McManus's door with the sole intention of murderous revenge. 
death looks certain, but Connor ingeniously saves his brother by dropping a toilet and himself on the Russian's <laughs> head from 75 feet. The crime scene of two dead Russians stumps the local police. The FBI agent Paul Smecker works out in every detail of the caper with stunning accuracy. While the McManuses turn themselves in, he's impressed with their intelligence, creativity, and the fact they took out two heinous criminals in self-defense. The brothers realize that they've found their true calling and they embark on a mission to cleanse their city of criminals. Somewhat haphazardly, they begin to take out key figures in the Russian and Italian mafia. Along the way, they recruit their friend Rocco, an ex-mafia lackey who knows where all the scum in Boston hang out and can help the brothers choose their targets. As the, mas- as the mafia casualties pile up, the Italians recruit El Duce, a one-man army played by Billy Connolly. Will the brothers meet their match? Should Paul Smecker arrest or assist these saintly vigilantes? And in the eyes of the Boston public, are the boondock saints really saints or sinners? Wow. Very good, Biggins. Very good. I like it. I'm a little bit, uh, almost a little bit disappointed you didn't read that out in full Billy Connolly accent, but ah. your own will, will see. <laughs> I should add that Paul Smecker is, is played by uh, William Defoe. William. William Defoe. Oh. William Defoe. <laughs> well, we said plot synopsis there. As plots go, it's kind of light, right? It's more of a cat and mouse movie of these guys killing and Willem, William, William Defoe Willem, trying sorry. to chase them. <laughs> I guess uh, uh, the the main thing that struck me on first viewing uh which i was not of which i was not aware was i guess i i expected like a vigilante type action thriller type thing to have some sort of uh usually there's there's an inciting incident or like a like a personal stakes or you know uh especially if it's about like cleaning up this town it's like oh you see the 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 bad guys doing bad shit in the town you see like i don't know you'd see somebody who's like Oh, they've, they've killed a, a, a bystander in a drugs crime or whatever. But what I found odd was that, um, they just sort of think it's, a, like quite fun. And then, and then they have a, a strange dream in a police cell. And then this is just what they do now. <laughs> it was quite an unusual path from just two lads to murder lads. <laughs> you, you missed an insight, <laughs> an inciting in, incident there. I think so. Um, well, yeah, I, I, which means that the so that the film opens in an extremely Catholic fashion with with prayers and priests and churches and is and I guess I wasn't expecting it to be that reverential, but um, that runs as the through line. It's possible that this is like a this is uh, according to them at least a essentially a mission from God, like in the Blues Brothers. Mm-hmm. Except not to play blues music and get money for orphans. Instead, it's to murder random people. Because I heard the inspiration for the screenplay happened when uh, someone was killed across from his apartment. A, a woman was was killed, and uh, it was all written because of the disgust of how what he was feeling in in that moment. Um, which it, it's kind of a, a noble, interesting way to start a script. I I kind of liked that, but his his kind of depictions end up being a bit childish and uh um i think that the the premise itself was better than some of the execution 
Um, as far as an inciting incident, it was, I missed something at the beginning as well. I missed that monumental moment where they decided to be vigilantes and, uh, you know, act on behalf of, of God as getting, getting revenge and, and cleaning up the town. So I, I, I wished that was a more of a moment. Well, it's, a, it's almost an odd opening scene, isn't it? We, we have, um, church congregation, uh, priests talking about, um, uh, about this exact thing that in the premise that is people witnessing, uh, an atrocity and not doing anything. But then the, the, the McManus brothers go up to the altar, say a prayer and walk off in the middle of mass. That's not very, um, mm. very, why did they stay to the end? You know, well, I, I thought they were gonna, cause I knew that they were like revenge guys. I thought they were gonna whack that nervous looking priest. I thought we were in <laughs> yeah. for like a real fucking kickoff, like that, you know, uh, the, the brothers were maybe like super religiously, um, uh, uh, fueled, but that they were also gonna start taking down the, you know, the scumbags within the church system. Uh, but they ended up not happening. They just walked out in really big jeans. And then put the sunglasses and the cigarettes and sink. It's, it, this is setting up a style uh, of the film, right? Yeah. The, the 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 I mean, the film is obviously completely muddled. Um, the in that opening scene, they already look like assassins. They already look <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah. They they are the Boondock Saints instantly, and the, the way that the priests kind of whisper to one another, it's almost as if you've got to be afraid afraid of these guys. Well, mm. why they've not become those Boondock Saints? Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't work. Because then we just see them being lads in the bar and at work, like getting kicked in the balls. Slapping each other with with bits of meat. (laughs) Just meat based. It's it's Paddy's day. It's almost as if Troy Duffy, he he likes Martin Scorsese films and he knows that Martin Scorsese films has got a huge sense of Catholic guilt hanging over them. Or he might like The Godfather and he he knows that sort of there's, there's, there's kind of that the, the depiction of basically a man losing his soul, and both of uh, the, the either Godfather films and Martin Scorsese films, they, they they are Catholic films in that way in which they explore the themes of Catholicism. They're not necessarily advocating Catholicism, but there, there is that sort of whole Catholic mentality going on, and, and as I say, the themes. Troy Duffy does not seem interested in the themes whatsoever. He just likes the stylistic look of a church. He, do, he do you think it's a bit of a ticklist, Biggins? I think it's a misunderstanding of, of, of what's good about, what's interesting about Catholicism in those films. And mm-hmm. it, 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 I, I think it's more like, hey, churches are cool. Priests are Irish. Let's work <laughs> this in there. And going no deeper than the surface level. In, in something like Mean Streets, uh, there's a lot of that. And uh, the idea of uh, Francis of Assisi, and um Harvey Keitel trying to, to emulate him and that's all underpinned and and Scorsese was going to be a priest so I, I think he is aping him a bit uh there's also a lot of stuff with I think there's some freeze frames uh or maybe I'm getting mixed up with something else. is there isn't many freeze frames in this one or is it mainly just titles it's mainly just uh titles uh, on screen there's a lot the of on screen titles yeah yeah and I, I've got a quote about the writing he said I wrote Boondock in three sections I wrote the very beginning and then I started thinking of cool shit for the middle. Then somehow between the beginning <laughs> and the middle, the ending dictated itself. And I was just drawn to the, to cool shit. Like that's not the creative process of a deep thinker or a brilliant mind. 
mm. or not even someone who understands filmmaking. It, and some someone like Paul Thomas Anderson or Quentin Tarantino would not say, I put some cool shit in there, even if they thought it. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why his slow-mo action scenes can sometimes feel quite empty, even though they look very cool. And I love the blood squibs in this this movie and slow-mo jackets very uh, gooey sunglasses yeah it's gooey and uh, but there's nothing underpinning it again it's all kind of surface so i i'm not i don't know how would i put it um i i think there is there is way too much focus on the the um surface in the sense that if this was meant to bring in catholic themes those boys need some sort of redemption story, or there needs to be something to do with kind of the guilt of, as I say, losing souls, etc. They're not guilty. They're going around just, <laughs> and they love it. They think they're doing the right thing. So this isn't the Catholic thing. But the, I, having said that, I do think that there is more going on by accident, because Troy Duffy is such a, a balls out character that there's some, there's, 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 there's genuine kind of madness in this film. The, the dialogue is mad. The action sequences are mad. Where if, if Martin Scorsese was doing sort of, you know, rhythm and blues, this is a punk rock film. So I think that I do enjoy the, the weirdness of it and how it's a muddle and how things don't quite work. But there isn't flashes of wit and brilliance and style that, that aren't, you know, that aren't excellently crafted. But they're just bizarre that I don't think, you know, if you were trying to, to just make a, a regular Pulp Fiction or, or Goodfellas ripoff that you would come across this. That This is a weird film. There are a lot of weird stylistic choices. And I like that. I, 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 I like how bits don't quite fit together. I, I, I like how it makes me laugh with its randomness. I, I like how really violent it is. It, it's, it, the, there are, hidden pleasures to it even if that isn't sort of he thought about the pleasures and say i think these are kind of an it, it's it's accidental almost I, I think a bit of uh, robert mckee or sid field might have helped as far as like the characters changing because it doesn't like you were saying biggins wouldn't it been wouldn't it have been more interesting if one of the brothers was more into the catholicism and there was a a, a conflict within them and then mm-hmm. add that to what devlin said let's have an inciting incident where they actually change. They become mm. the Boondock Saints uh, as opposed to just being that right from the get-go. In the film, what, what happens here is the Russians come to take the bar. Obviously, they don't want to. They fight the Russians, set their arse on fire, as David told us in the synopsis. And I quite like the top shots of the sequence when they, they fuck over the, the Russians with the toilet. But getting in the police and impressing uh, Smacker uh, and getting off with it, that's that is what is kind of perceived in its basic form as the inciting incident in the film, right? They then go on to decide that this is what they're going to do. Well, yeah, I'm thinking of this quote that he said, um, Duffy said, Susan Smith was a woman who drowned her kids. And then he, he said, there's a, there's a group of guys going into McDonald's and lighting up the whole place, killing everyone. These are events that happened um fairly recently in terms of when he was putting the story together mm-hmm. and there's this quote where he said whoever did that despicable thing should pay with their life you think for maybe just a minute that whoever did that should die without any fucking jury mm-hmm. i was just going to give everybody that sick fantasy and <laughs> i i didn't uh, that's what he's doing and i i don't think the the in, the inciting incident 
uh, it, it no, it's not, it's not convincing it, at all. It needs to be big so that he can then deliver on on yeah. that. And I just I wish there'd been something that created like the origin story of creating the Boondock Saints that would have lifted it. The, the, the religious thing you spoke, the dreamlike sequence in the in the prison cell, Dublin, where, where it's um, Aspergillum, the the water kind of almost baptizing them there as well. It, I mean, mm. I think, and that's a bit style of a substance and and almost bullshit really going forward he's I'm trying, trying to find he's, he's, he's putting he's an trying. image in there there's that, ideas that there yeah. yeah and now we're full on that they're going to do the the russian russian mafiosos call on the on the bleeper and they decide that they can kill people and get money it's just that it's also light like the the ivan could not be more of a, a a cartoon character and they dispatch them so handily and then like also i mean i'm not sure when they set fire to his ass, that's not when they're being vigilantes. They just thought it would be funny to set fire to a dude's ass. Um, what I find is like we've been in the, in the bar and obviously I know they want to set up that these guys are just like roused about top lads and you want to hang out with them and stuff. And like you said, this is basically Troy Duffy's vision of himself. That is a dude who is desperate to be actually Irish. Well, well he's so in that scene. Yeah. So these guys are the idealized. Everyone dresses like him. Everyone talks like him. Everyone talks like him. There's no differentiation between any of the of the kind of the the, the lad characters. Um, <laughs> um, imagine going but, in the fitting and Troy Duffy going, "I really want you to wear these dungarees with no." <laughs> <laughs> um, All right, I'll wear them. <laughs> but what's what's odd is that, like I said, you just, I don't know whether it's that he doesn't want to portray South Boston as being like a hellhole because I mean it's it's very um, Travis Bickle. You know, this kind of, we are going to be the hard rain that comes to wash the scum off the streets. But you haven't seen the scum on the streets. You've seen cartoonish villains and then a bunch of like just good people trying to get by. And uh, maybe it's because the ideas came from a time when the script was was a, a bigger project and they had to shrink it down to fit this much smaller budget shooting probably in quite a little isolated few streets in Toronto and kind of having to swap them out to look vaguely like Boston. Maybe it reduced the scope because the film's quite long as well. It's just that because it doesn't, I just, I don't know. I've, it, it doesn't take too much to depict a neighborhood as being extremely dangerous. And all it takes is like one little throwaway thing. Instead of a priest telling us a story about a woman who was mugged. Yeah. 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 Show it. Like that's yeah. how films work. It's, it's not that difficult a sequence to, to, to put together uh, and think. show them being affected by it. Yeah, maybe she's just maybe she's just somebody they know from the neighborhood. Maybe it's the wife of the guy who runs the meat plant or something. But yeah, but it doesn't that, would, that would mean including a female character in the film, which I don't think was on Troy Duffy's agenda when he wrote Ooh. it. Do, do we talk about the rule of wrist and then him just punching a woman in the face, or do we just let that sit? <laughs> <laughs> the film passes the Bechdel test, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, that's the scene that I feel the most uncomfortable with, where where he's it's threatening. Re- it's ludicrous. It, it's horrible. Where where there's, there's, there's I suppose there's the two sequences. The, the, there's one the uh, where um, they have just gone to um, Simbin or uh, whatever it's called, um, and there's a woman unconscious. She's 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 half dressed and. Rocco gropes her, and there's, there's no to comical music. saxophone music. And yeah. it, the 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 worst the thing is that the the character doesn't he doesn't learn 
the, the only kind of redemption for that character is is death and that's treated like a sad thing when throughout the film he's 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 he murders someone that is reasonably innocent as far as i can tell i don't know why the bar uh tends to get shot you you see him groping a woman you see him uh hitting and threatening a woman being really you know sort of and it's it's is, this is not a good character. This is someone that, to a certain extent, I wanted them to have a comeuppance. And the death is treated like a tragedy. And it's, it's, it's really... Well, well Norman Reedus' reaction to that death uh, is... Yeah. is uh, he goes stratospheric with his performance there. And, and Flannery. Just... Flannery's pretty... Flannery's given it the uh, the Hayden Christensen, no, the, the big drawn-out, no. <laughs> the meatpacking uh, begins. Did, did you want to say anything about the meatpacking? scene or I, i've got the, the the youtube comments were more offensive than the scene if you can believe <laughs> it uh i i won't read any of them um but it it was kind of we talk about 2020 or 2021 hindsight on the show a lot and that's one of the scenes that just doesn't survive absolutely not yeah it's it's awful and and Gally, I'm sorry you're not here today, but one of the points he definitely wanted to raise in here was Troy Duffy's uh, apparent inability to construct a scene because obviously he's not not a very good filmmaker. That is possibly the the biggest example of it. The the hitting with the meat, the the dialogue, everything is awful about that scene, and and it's not constructed very well or, or handled with it at all. And we've kind of touched upon here what, where we feel the film would have been better or as a setup. That's maybe from a writing point of view from Tro- Troy Duffy. He's not very good either. But from a directing uh, point of view, what, what do we think about Troy Duffy's direction here? Is it still, along with the writing, all style, no substance, slow mode, the, the action? Or is there anything in his direction that we see uh, merit and promise for? Uh, I, so... <laughs> Merit and promise are, are, are maybe two strong words, but I, as I say, I, I think there is something that is interesting. It, it's not bland, whatever you can call it. And I think that if you add the, the fact that he, he does obviously love someone like Martin Scorsese because the scenes are directed in it. It's, 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 he's, a, he's a rock and roll director in the sense that Martin Scorsese will direct a scene to music or edit a scene to music. And there's lots of that going on in this film. And there are simple pleasures that's taken from bits like that. So if you take the fact that it, it's quite derivative, but he's taking things um, from other films that are quite good, quite, you know, that do have some thought about style, even if it is just about style. And then you add that to the weirdness of everything that is is going wrong. As I say, for me, it's there is something quite punk filmmaking about it. it. I'm interested in someone who doesn't know much about film making what they think is a good film and throwing everything at it. it this is just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And there's there's something I find sort of weirdly hypnotic, definitely entertaining, it, it, almost like a, a car crash. You you know you 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 sh- you feel you should be looking away at this bad taste, but there's there's something. It's like what is going on here? I'm half dreaming. Am I half drunk? <laughs> Aside from the quote about the cool shit, like st- structurally, I've been thinking about him just writing it all on beer mats and then just sort of going, oh, well, I'll put that one there. Yes. And, yes. and then sort of going yeah. to a notebook and sort of when he did eventually put it 
into a screenplay. Apparently he talked to a, a girlfriend of his in Hollywood and he said, can you get me a script of anything that's been produced just so I can see how a script is formatted? And she gave him uh, Jack by um, uh, the, the Coppola movie, Jack with Rob, Robin Williams. So I can just picture Troy Duffy with, with his beer mats and his, and his notebook and then Jack in the other hand. And he's just doing the the interiors and exteriors and the dialogue mm. and things like that. But how it was all kind of um, collaged together, I, I think it, it, you're exactly right. It was kind of haphazard and without too much knowledge of how you put. I, I don't even know if he made a short film prior to this. Does anyone know if he did? I don't, I don't believe so. it. He hasn't got anything yeah. noted at all. Just the idea of that. Just your, it's your first effort at doing something. We've all made first films, and you know and that's yeah. A, it's a tricky one <laughs> to do. From directorial style, Matt, you're a big fan of the Fates of Blacks, aren't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, that that was Devlin that mentioned it, but I'm I'm I can I can deal with Fade to Blacks. Uh, Devlin's mentioned it before uh, as a as a period, as a as a full stop on a scene, or um, you, you'll but it but it has a meaning. Yeah, it, has a, it, it, it does has have a, a meaning. Uh, yeah. One, one of my issues in filmmaking is, uh, when shots don't cut, so they use dissolves to, to join mm. them together. It's more that than the fade, fade to blacks. But, uh, yeah, you counted a few in this one, a few fade to blacks. Oh gosh. Uh, I put it in all caps. I wrote, so the, I watched the film and, uh, wanted to kind of keep track of what was going on, uh, which, which very quickly became a very important thing for me. Uh, so there's, uh, there's a, a lot of, you know, I have basically the entire plot kind of mapped out here and I'm looking and virtually every paragraph is basically a scene, uh, anywhere between. Is there one, any rhyme or reason to the fade to black? Anywhere between, is, is a, a, anywhere between a, a, a half to two thirds of scenes fade to black, Whoa, which okay. is an individual Some of them. They would, uh, um, so there are times when it makes sense. There are times when it makes sense when they are going to. So the, the other thing that the film has is this kind of, uh, Columbo structure, sort of, I guess, of, you know, you meet the crime scene and then you have the, uh, the action sequence is then, um, relayed to us via Willem Dafoe's, uh, uh, offensively stereotyped <laughs> super cop coming in and explaining what's happened beforehand. So the first time you see it is when he puts on the opera. And he, uh, and, and he's talking to, he's, he's explaining, cause the, 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 the local cops are talking about, oh, the, the guy, he got sat on by a guy who crushed him and then he sat on this guy and then, uh, so he goes, he puts his opera on, which everyone in the nineties thought that's what all gay men were into. He, he, well, he'd been watching Leon Shirley. He'd been watching. Okay. Oh, Gary Oldman. Definitely. Um, and then, uh, and then he reconstructs the, the thing and he tells what happened and then you get to see the action scene. Uh, and it works once, like it's a, it's an intriguing, I was kind of intrigued. I wanted to know what, what exactly they were getting at with this, but, um, what becomes, uh, like we were saying about cool shit to fill the middle is that that is a, a structure that's repeated multiple times, but, um, without ever really, um, progressing the wider plot arc. So, um, you expect to, you know, you expect you, the first one, uh, uh, is, is the, the alleyway, which is literally them just kind of trying to defend themselves however they can, which means lugging a toilet up. I guess he must have taken the toilet up a couple extra flights of stairs. <laughs> Handcuffed. I think. Thank God Norman Reedus was just about to be shot directly under 
toilet dropping <laughs> rink. I thank God uh, he knew he could survive that fall as well. Yeah, and that they were going to take him out and then tell him that they were going to shoot him and and give him <laughs> toilet time to, to get a random there. aside. That stunt makes me wince because he only just hits the rough uh, the 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 Russian guy to break his fall. His leg is so close to hitting the ground beforehand that every time it looks, oh, it's, I mean, it's an impressive stunt, but I think it's it's very close to going wrong from how it looks. (laughs) Well, it'd be shot in three sections, like a a, a high, um, it'd have jumped off a a platform for the lower one. Right. I don't know whether it's a stunt double um, for that final shot that you see in there. But I really, I actually quite like the top shot effect of the toilet smashing over the Russian's head. I think it's done really well. Yeah, I like that. I, I guess it's unfired crockery, like uh, Sam Raimi used to use. Yeah, yeah, just so it right. just breaks apart it's, really it's, easily. It's called breakaway props, is, is what yeah. it would be. Like almost yeah. a sugar glass type thing. But, right. but I think it looks very good. And I quite like the style of that slow-mo, that he, the top shot's there. I think there is merit, for want of a better word there. It's like, but, of course, it's creative. It, yeah, it is Biggins. And there is a vision, isn't there? It, it's, it, there's something yeah, yeah. going on where you can look at this and say, there's a human behind this who is mm-hmm. directing this film. And, and that takes the blandness yes. out of it. Blandness is not the problem, I don't think. And blandness is something that is completely away from any of this when we have Willem Dafoe, who's about one, one innuendo off the genie from extras. <laughs> He is, uh, uh, when he orders a latte with a twist of lemon and some sweet and low. And this is where we get into, uh, the, the mind of Troy Duffy, where it's like, what'd it be cool? And what do I, probably kind of a bigot. No, what would probably be kind of a bigot. What do I think a gay person might order? <laughs> well, they do love lattes, whatever that is. I assume you put lemon in it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite sure what he was going for with that character. I gotta do this by the numbers. ID just came back on these guys. They got connections with the Russian mob. That makes it a federal matter. And Agent Smecker here is heading up the investigation with our full cooperation. Why don't you get me a cup of coffee? Who the hell is it? Cafe latte. What the fuck? Twist the lemon. Chief, what the fuck is this? Sweet and low. We discussed Leon recently. We just mentioned Gary Oldman's massive performance in that. And this isn't that, obviously. But uh, Mm -hmm. I do like Willem Dafoe in this. I think he's uh, probably the best thing in it. Uh, I think he's the best thing in it. And it's kind of amazing to see someone completely off the hook and given free reign and freedom to do what they want with a character. And it is quite compelling. You can't take your eyes off Defoe throughout the whole film, whether he's dressed as a woman, whether he's... Um, Making out with a, a doorman. Making out with a doorman. Whether he's firing his gun in the air, frustrated that he can't work out what's going on. That Defoe's doing all sorts of shit in this film, and I'm quite there enjoying There was a firefight! <laughs> <laughs> But there is, there's a, going back to the, the bigotry that Devlin said, there's this very fucking strange bit of dialogue. When Troy Duffy's sensibility, when, um, he uses the word fag in one of the, one of the scenes with everyone's dead and, um, Willem Dafoe reacts to it and he says, fat guy. He's like, oh, Freudian slip, if ever I heard one, something like that. 
I'd what? Friday into Yeah, for for a homophobic film, it's quite homoerotic too. Like the, the that bit we mentioned with Norman Reedus, where he's freaking out on the floor, where uh, uh, it, it it feels like he's he's. I don't know. I won't get. I won't go into it. But the, the, we get Willem Willem Dafoe doing the the most insane cross dressing business I've I've ever seen. Do you want to ride yeah. with the champ? Is another line that he's been throwing out there. Yeah. Uh, Galley referenced Mrs. Doubtfire, which I, I kind of saw. I, I thought he looked more like the female gremlin from Gremlins 2. Uh, or yes. the lead singer of the New York Dolls, perhaps. But, uh, but there was, it could be some kind of repressed thing on Troy Duffy's part. I, I have no idea why he, he has a preoccupation with homosexuality and quite an unhealthy one. Mm-hmm. I hope he's figured that out. Um, there's the the Ron Jeremy and the Russian dude. The, the same when he's on uh, the phone in bed with someone as well, and yeah, he slaps an Asian man. I don't know what's going on. Um, and I assume when he's uh, when he's dropping the f bomb, he's he, I assume he's in a gay bar. Is look, it looks like it. Yes, yes. right. Yeah, yeah. Because the barman yeah. barman's you know one of those '90s stereotype done for comedy camp people who's like. Oh, it, it, it feels misjudged. I, I don't know how mean spirited it is. I have written mean spirited as one of my critiques, that, and but I, I don't know how much of that is intended. And I, I don't know him personally, in spite of seeing overnight a lot. But, um, we, we did it's touch clumsy, upon this, isn't it? it uh, that, during the rock, man. That's yeah. kind of what's mean spirited yeah. versus what they deem is funny and comedy. Because when we get to mm. the Papa, Papa John scene yeah. introduction, he, uh, Papa I'm not Joe. Papa Joe, Papa John. I'm thinking of pizza. No, I'm always thinking of pizza. When Rocco uh, says a black person or an African American, Papa mm. Joe wants him to use the N word, which I don't right. want to say here, and it's made a point of, and that feels very mean spirited in that scene. Oh, that that is what Papa John would do. <laughs> Notorious racist. That's why he got sacked from being Papa John. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's libelous. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're uh <laughs> shut that galley yeah we love his pizzas though it's all true i've got receipts <laughs> <laughs> that that scene was one of the things that differentiated it from tarantino's work i know he gets a lot of flack for for using that word and uh, mostly from spike lee but uh you know i i never felt that when i when i watched pulp fiction or, or reservoir dogs i, I never felt a mean-spirited no, I mean, bone in it. I, I always felt like that's coming from a character. And, uh, we don't have to like that particular character, but it's coming from them. I believe it from a, from a, a writing point of view. But here that there's a question mark over Duffy and that kind of sours it a bit. What's odd about like when Tarantino uses it is that you can tell that Tarantino, however misguided, has a great deal of affection and affinity for at least his version in his head of, uh, of black culture. Uh, possibly to his detriment, which is that, you know, wearing his giant Wu-Tang jerseys and, uh, and, and listening to like, you know, obscure sixties and seventies funk. It's possible that Tarantino perhaps has projected himself a little too far into a community, which perhaps he is definitely 100% not a part of. Troy Duffy conspicuously has no people of color within this film, which makes it a lot more uncomfortable. One of the problems with that scene is it's directed in a way that it wants the audience to laugh at a racist joke. That I, I, that is incredibly yeah. problematic, and it's just misjudged. And it's the sort of thing that you can imagine Troy Duffy probably either told that joke or heard that joke in his bar. Maybe they laughed at it and he's whacked it in the film. And it, it's it's not. It, I mean, 
it's from a time and a place. I don't think even in that time or place it would have been appropriate to try to get the audience to laugh at the joke in that film because it's of the character who, again, I constantly want the comeuppance of this character because he's a nasty character. He does know these racist jokes and he is really sort of problematic with women. I don't find anything redeeming or interesting about that character. But Troy Duffy loves that character, worships that character. And that, that mm. uh, it just doesn't work. And is it worth even talking about the cat sequence? I'm surprised they didn't call the cat Marvin. Well, that's exactly it. That, that it, it's, it's shooting Marvin in the face, but with a cat. And, uh, the problem, the problem is that when, when they shoot Marvin in the face, it, it leads into an unexpected avenue that we've never, we can't believe that the, the script has been flipped. And now all of a sudden we're in Jimmy's house and all of that segment of Pulp Fiction is just, uh, it goes off on a tangent in a, in a beautiful way. And, uh, in this film, it just feels like they're killing a cat. Because it's a little bit like that film in, like that moment in Pulp Fiction. Those scenes in that room, that scene when they were getting drunk and were eating pizza, and then when the girls come in and it's one, of, they are the most chaotic scenes of this film. They're just yeah. all, like all over the place. So that's where you've got when you say like his directing style. This is where it becomes really apparent that he doesn't, he hasn't got any experience at marshalling a, a scene, and also it's very telling that, that Rocco, David Della Rocco, right? That's his name. David mm-hmm. Delarocco, as played by the uh, uh, <laughs> as played by the legendary screen actor David Delarocco, who, uh, by all accounts, <laughs> just his, just his jerk friend, right? Just some guy you it know. written for him. Yeah, he's convinced mm-hmm. he's hilarious, but it's like I, I, an inexperienced filmmaker writing quite rough dialogue and rough sequences for a guy who is like he he really reminded me of like the most unhinged Peter Stormare. Like, Peter Stormare kind of really cranking it up as high as he can. He kind of looks a bit like... Armageddon on the space station. Yeah, he's just unwilling. Unwilling and not even unwilling to rein him in. Like, absolutely loving the stuff that this guy's coming up with. And I think that possibly they probably cooked up the scene about the cat together because, you know, they thought it would be a fun little button. And and it's... To be fair, 99 is, is rife with shock humor with a lot of times we say that the stuff doesn't age very well and if you look back at what was going on in like mass culture in 99 it really does make sense that this was a film that if i'd have seen it before i saw the documentary i probably would have been into it as well i was watching you know monday night raw in the heat of the attitude era there's fucking awful things happening in that (laughs) everyone was watching jerry springer and then watching the videos whereas jerry springer is too hot for tv and it's all like it's all quite like edgy, offensive shock humor, and and it was just mm. it hasn't aged well. Fuck it, <laughs> I'm doing it. I deserve it. I've been working for those fat bastards since I've been in high school. Look at this fucking place. They're fucking me, man. They can suck my pathetic little dick, and they'll dip my nuts in marinara sauce just so that fat bastards can get a taste of home while they're at it. Fuck it. I'm doing it. It is.
I, I, I do like um, edgy and shocking humor, and it, it's, but it's almost, it, it's not like you're sitting in front of Frankie Boyle, you know, it, it, it's, the, at the time, sort of, probably I would have not watched anything as shocking as that. And sometimes when you, you, you are shocked by something like that, your only reaction is to laugh. It's almost kind of a way of um, compensating with it. Um, and I, I, I do have um, affection for the film in the sense that it was probably a time where I hadn't seen many other 18s before. And there's something just naturally exciting about watching something quite naughty and you're not allowed to watch it um and the 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 pleasures from it that i i take from the film that are probably related to, to you know that really just the fact that as i say for me it was a genuine cult experience this was not a film that i could see at the cinema this was not a film that i could even rent or see on tv this was underground i was part of a special club that saw this really naughty film um, and I, I think that that's probably one of the reasons why it did connect with a, a huge college audience, because it's something we haven't talked about yet so far, but this film flopped at the cinema, partly because it, 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 it got involved in studio politics, so it didn't get a great distribution deal, but it happened very close to Columbine. So when you've got something that is so extremely violent, extremely bad taste, happening alongside an awful American tragedy, the, it, the the two things just couldn't go. The, the mood had gone for that sort of mindless um, violence, and uh, as a result, it failed the cinema. And it was it really should have fallen into total obscurity. But for some reason, whatever reason, it worked on video because people uh, like myself, like Wangs in America, were were sharing the videotape around. It's like, have you seen this film? Moondock Saints, never heard of it. And there was something kind of cool about that. So the fact that it was it was genuinely an underground film, and when you look at it, it's made in an underground, pulpy, punky sort of way. The two things made it really connect with an audience. And it's it, 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 so much so that it warranted a sequel um, nine, ten years later. It had enough of that fan interest that the band got back together and they did it again. And the sequel is pretty much exactly the same, except for because it's 10 years later, it, it just seems even more bad taste. So the things that were potentially maybe thrilling at the time are just tired. Um, that's not to say that if you if you really, really like the Boondock Saints, the first one, you're going to like the second one. Um, but it's, uh, there's nothing new there. Um, it, it, there's no advancement or learning or anything along those lines. My, my friend Noel, American friend of mine from Chicago, she, um, I mentioned it to her just to get an American point of view on the film. And she said this was a rite of passage film for her at college over there. So it seemed to be quite, going back to what you said, being about like being a cult film and one of those examples of something finding its, um, its, its home on DVD and DVD release at the home cinema so to speak. Um, yes, yeah, fascinating that. Like, I didn't really get that, um, Columbine kind of attribution to what will resonate with people at the time or what they want to look at. I just thought it was more of us being, you know, young and holding on to an 18 film that was a little bit naughty, as you said, and kind of 
uh, a, a daring, uh, want, wanton cool film. There was, there was an unfortunate kind of parallel with uh, Columbine that you mentioned, uh, that the killers talked of a godlike wrath as well. It was all kind of tied into that. They're exacting revenge on those who bullied them. And it, it's, it's not a million miles away from, from the outlook of, it you was know, you the, can the, totally the understand why why that would end up being like in in the in the yeah. press and and the, why any distributor would would probably not really want to not they don't want to have that fight as well it was a very small distribution company they ended up with in in the in the yeah. end the film when it passed from miramax it went to um franchise films which is uh uh just very much worth a look at the uh the guys like Elias Samaha was the um the guy who ended up being the the main investor exec producer would definitely recommend looking up his wikipedia page that guy is a fucking crook in a really hilarious way <laughs> he's also married to Tia Carrera for 10 years good oh, but uh, <laughs> he um uh, uh he specialized basically in sweeping up broken stalled projects from other studios especially passion projects for uh, big name actors knowing that he could bundle up a bunch of um uh, funding from various uh, international studios, kind of pull it all together, uh, make the things on the cheap. And as it pointed out in the in the documentary on the overnight, uh, the the DVD and video sales for this film were huge, and Troy Duffy saw none of it because the deals that he makes are really really terrible in terms of what the uh, repayment is to the creatives. Um, but just for for reference, Ilya Samaha's franchise films was also the studio around this time who was funding uh battlefield earth well okay to well, give I'm you a, a little a little uh, uh level of where he was at in the industry uh music wise obviously duffy is friends with the brood and he wanted them on the soundtrack i think and got them he's the in the brood. contract he's, he's in it oh he's in it as well yeah now devlin you strike me as the kind of person who'd watch this and then go and try and listen to their music to see if they're any good or not did you the only really thing thing i know about the brood is is seeing the stuff that ended up in in overnight because um they were expected to produce the soundtrack that was the the original deal that they had the the you know the big the nice deal that they got from miramax was they were going to produce the soundtrack they were going to be on the soundtrack um that ended up not really happening um the score actually for this was uh, was Michael Banner. This is one of his first films. Michael Banner went on to be quite a prominent uh, composer alongside his brother. Um, scored uh, Terry Gilliam's Tideland and uh, a bunch of oh, much wow. bigger films. But I do love Tideland, um, and it's a it's a very unusual score. I know Matt, you had it's more some, like a uh, trance. Uh, it's like an electronic trance nonsense. I've written. Um, yeah, I just thought the music was dreadful. I, I really didn't like it. <laughs> But um, I'm not sure I liked The Brood much either. It was kind of middle of the road. Uh, it was the guy, who was the guy, the Doobie Brothers guy producing them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long train um, running. So yeah, the, the, there was this weird thing where the syndicate was a company that was formed and they were going to do, he was going to write and direct and he had Final Cut and he was going to have his band do the soundtrack. And it was just too much. Like he always seemed to me like more focused on the music than the film. Right. And I think that was part part of the downfall, really. I think he should have paid 100% interest to the film yeah. and not become preoccupied with the brood and the soundtrack and the recording contracts and appeasing his mates. It's hard enough to direct a feature film, let alone trying to launch a music career at the same time. And he ended up kind of pitting one against the other. And it was just turned into a nightmare, I think. 
oddly, they, they sounded even a little bit old fashioned at the, at the time. Like, um, hmm. their aesthetic is just screams 1998 slash 99 with the wraparound thin sunglasses and the leather dusters and the photo shoot <laughs> that they have in overnight is fucking hilarious because <laughs> they all look so miserable with the dogs in the foreground as well. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't the all visible. go with dungarees though. That's one thing. I mean, <laughs> they'd true. all been in dungarees. Maybe there's some visible embarrassment etched on the faces of some of the other members of the band to just to be there. And, um, but yeah, they were kind of like a hard rock thing. Um, I'm trying uh, to what think the, what they the, sound the like. Are they kind of a bad Pearl Jam? Is that what, what, what I don't yeah, really kind of like a post grunge type of vibe. There's a vocal harmonies in there and they're not awful, but they're, um, they're not much beyond what you would have seen in, you know, in a, in a in a couple of bars in around that sort of time, they're uh, you know. I, I actually thought it. they well, were on the soundtrack as well. I didn't realise that they yeah. didn't quite make it there. Um, and in the music in the film as well, there are uh, there's some a point I can't remember where it is where there's like some monk like uh, <laughs> just to uh, hammer home that that thematic of it as well. Um, maybe that electronic score came about. I think they probably put it together in a bit of a rush um there's there is a bit of music which sounds like them in the awful bar fight where troy duffy is in the scene um with a very terribly choreographed given that guy the dig in the ribs there's like a kind of uh sort of chunky down-tuned riff rock kind of thing going on and that sounds like like one of theirs it's um uh it's it's of its time it was big around then what they, there was a uh a genre of music that was called the uh, hunger dunga dang. Like really low rent kind yeah. of. Uh, hunger dunga dang. Hunger dunga dang. It was based <laughs> yeah. on like the, the guys, they all, they all took, um, uh, uh, his name Jerry Cantrell for the guy from Alice in Chains. I don't know right. if he's a singer. I don't know uh-huh. much about Alice in Chains, but he had that real kind of like, uh, or Eddie Vedder. They had those real kind of, uh, yeah. uh distinctive voices. And so you had a whole bunch of dudes ripping them off in, in increasingly terrible ways, you know, like stained and puddle of mud and early nickelback, yeah. all that stuff. It's right. So there you go. It's got a bit of the hunger dunga dangs about it. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> That's my new word of the day. Thank you for that. Um, now we haven't, we, we've spoken about Defoe. We haven't really talked much about Flannery Aridus, but I think our next favorite character in the film is Il Duce. Played by Billy Connolly. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's one of the weird elements of it, and one of the reasons probably why I agreed to take the the CD off my friend. That <laughs> Billy Connolly plays a heavy hitman. What? Um, yeah. so, and I, I'm more a fan of Billy Connolly's stand-up career than his acting career. I, I don't think he's got too many solid credits, but M- the, Muppets Treasure Island. Yeah, actually, yeah, no, that's a good show. Um, I think, um, he, I, so I've listened to the audio commentary um, with Billy Connolly, and he, from his point of view, this is the role of his lifetime, and this is the role that he is most proud of. And he loved being taught how to basically fire guns and kill people. And he he was, as I said before, flattered by Troy Duffy, and he had time of his life. He loved Willem Dafoe, he loved Troy Duffy, he loved just being on set. He described it as a real kind of family experience. And he thought that because the, the film was, was so 
low budget and there were so many pressures that created a really good vibe in terms of just getting the work done that you you potentially don't get on a, a bigger budget film and he's, he's done pretty big, big budget films as well um so one thing that he said in terms of how he approached his acting which i thought was quite interesting is that he said he adopted a sort of asian style of acting where if you think of the hong kong action films where you 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 the 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 heroes tend to not be particularly expressive they they have to be sort of hard men functional men often quite deadly men and they they have to somehow make the audience empathize with them or connect with them in a way while their bodies are still quite you know stiff and and, and methodic um so so i i thought that was an, an interesting comment from him and he i mean i i think he does actually pull off quite well this aura of being legendary i don't think oh it's billy Connolly. that doesn't look right he he's, he he seems larger than life and in terms of the way he moves there is something almost ghostly so it, it it's it's a fairly ingenious um casting that i i do think helped the film billy connolly and willem defoe add an extra sort of gravitas and and to a certain extent mystery about the film which, which does give it an extra layer of admittedly just style but at the same time, it's it it is it's it's pleasing to see him perform in in a, such a different role. I particularly love him that that vest he has with the six guns. I mean that 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 I think it, as as a design of a character goes from Duffy, this is the best one. The aesthetic of him, the cigar was a good decision. The six gun vest and all that madness, I quite like all of that, and I really enjoy Connolly's character. And I like the setup, um, the introduction of him in the police, uh, uh, excuse me, the prison as well. Um, Devlin, you've got a look on your face that maybe you don't agree. Why well, I had, I had two, two slightly different takes. Uh, the <laughs> main one is that I find it very difficult to take Billy Connolly seriously because he is very, very, very similar to my dad. <laughs> 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 Both kind of, you know, like twinkly Glaswegian men of a certain age with white beards. <laughs> so, uh, uh, my dad had a, had a very, very, very similar accent to Billy Connolly. And, uh, and I saw it adds also the six guns, which I theoretically understand is like, ah, oh, there's so many guns. They sort of look like teats. Use them to suckle some smaller firearms. <laughs> So the, um, there was a story that Billy Connolly said about the guns, the teats, that once he's finished with a couple of the glocks, he throws them quite high into the air, which you wouldn't necessarily do. You'd normally just sort of probably drop them and quickly go. So it takes takes more effort, takes more time to physically throw them there. Yeah, ripping the off his teats. Well, yeah. <laughs> The, the the reason was is because they were um the guy who owned the guns was on set and when he was told that they were just going to be thrown down to the floor, he was horrified. He didn't want his guns scratched. So Billy Connolly had to throw them as high into the air as possible so that the guy could physically then catch his guns <laughs> from him. So he, he he was literally just as far back as he could in the hope that this guy would then run from the back, get the gun, um, and yeah, not not have it damaged, which was was, was random. Brilliant. There was a there was a bit of alt casting. Um, I found. I know Kenneth Branagh was yeah. in the running, 
And uh, there was also a meeting with John Goodman. I don't know if that was related to this film or uh, just a general meeting, but I know Branagh was definitely in the picture for it. I mean, that would have been quite interesting. So Billy Connolly says he knows that he was the second choice and that Troy Duffy's right. first choice was, was was simply unavailable and so that they'd had, had to completely change um, the approach to the character. But he, he doesn't name who the individual were, uh, is. He just says, it was a legend. Yeah, the, De Niro's name comes up in Overnight as well, so I assume... Yeah, but that's that just wishful some... thinking, right? Yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, this was from Overnight. The, the, the people that we see, we see Swayze, Wahlberg... Uh, Jake Busey, which was interesting. Uh, <laughs> Jerry O'Connell, Billy yeah. Zane, Vincent D'Onofrio, Matthew Modine, Jeff Goldblum, which could have been mm. Il Duce, uh, Emilio Estevez, Patrick Swayze, who passed, and Ewan McGregor, who almost got beaten up or beat up Troy Duffy, depending <laughs> on uh, which story you believe. And then, and then what do we think about Il, Il Duce's, um, plot twist finale, so, so to speak? coming up to the end and he sides with the boys and is their fa- the father. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, I think, maybe more resultant of the very choppy construction of the later part of the film that none of this really kind of uh, uh, perhaps lands in the way that it might. I know they've, big, they've bigged up Il Duce and it, it is, uh, you know what, it's a good introduction even though it's ripped off from the rock. When he's getting wheeled out on his yeah. little car, yeah, 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 and you've got the, the the mirrors. It's yeah, they've done a good enough job of building a, a an air of even though I myself cannot actually get on board with it, I understand what they're <laughs> father. Um, no. <laughs> my my favorite shot in the movie is there. Um, th- th- there's a shot. Um, let me find it. Uh, all of the cops racking their shotguns, and there's mm. one above the other, and there's like three or four in a row. Yes, hold it quite far out. To get it yeah. on camera, it, it, it was slightly unnatural, but th- th- again, there's a visual eye there, and that that was my favourite shot in the movie. I think. So I, I, I'm conflicted, I think, because on the one hand, um, I I liked the fact that Billy Connolly was the the father. It, it kind of it gave a um, it made the two characters make more sense. In the, the 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 brothers because yeah. I I didn't understand how they could so easily become the Boondock Saints and just be these awesome gunmen and having that little bit of history put that into a better context for me. So in turn, I I don't think it was was that left field. I thought it actually it helped a few a few little things fall in line a bit better. I was okay. a little disappointed in the sense that when you have the the um, the first scene with Billy Connolly shooting and Willem Dafoe, there was a firefight! <laughs> no one actually dies in that scene. There are bullets yeah. everywhere. And are they, they're, they're standing right in front of each other and they, they barely scratch them. What yeah, but, yeah, but, Con- but Il Duce's strafing. Uh, so, the, the, so therefore, in terms of the, the, the end of the film, I'm hoping for a chaotic, thrilling, adrenaline-filled firefight, and it doesn't come because all of the best shooters are actually related. And in, t- in how that wraps up, I think that's a little bit of an anticlimax for 
with me. Um, it, it's it dealt with better in the, in the second film. I, I think the 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 action oh, okay. and the beats of the action work better in in the second film. I think it's it's more um, emotionally kind of satisfying, but also just in terms of how it's paced, I think it works better. Um, but yeah, I didn't have a problem with it. It it, le- it leads into an interesting, well, as interesting as it can be, premise for the second one. Um, and uh, that's all I have to say about that. I thought maybe he'd just seen Empire Strikes Back and he just kind of <laughs> yeah. ripped off that. Really, it could be as shallow as that, to be honest. But could be, it yeah. does. It works for me. It's fine. Yeah. I actually, I, I totally get what you're saying there about how it does actually. You know, it may, it makes sense and it gives everyone's characters more character um i just think maybe in when we're talking I about see it. That, yeah basically that's it i want you to write the scenes and then i want you to film the scenes and then i want you to edit them in a way that's coherent so i can understand <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it's uh because it, i don't know it, even though I, I i struggled to take him seriously i do love billy Connolly as a screen presence even though he isn't the world's greatest actor and it is kind of you know uh his his performance is probably not technically very good, but he's one of those guys like a Defoe where he has screen presence. He's on screen. So you want to watch him, uh, which I think perhaps contrasted a little for me with our lead characters. I'm not quite sure if they have that same star presence or at least at that stage in their career, whether they did. Now, Devlin, I checked the credits. I watched them all for a dialect coach. And to my shock and horror, there wasn't one. I don't think they do very well with the, with the accents. I think Reedus in particular struggles quite a lot there. And they are just, they're just the same characters throughout the whole film and I don't know, don't have much to do, really. We end up with Norman Reedus and Sean Patrick Flannery, uh, but I'd have really liked to have seen the original Miramax version with the different cast, and that would have likely mm-hmm. been Stephen Dorff and Marky Mark Wahlberg as the brothers. Okay. As much as I loathe Marky Mark uh, in anything except Boogie <laughs> Nights. Um, but yeah, I, I think that would have been interesting to see that. Yeah. And uh, I... I you know, you can see that they're a kind of a Poundland version of, of that pair. But, um, yeah, <laughs> as, as we've said earlier, I've, I've said about as much as I can about the, the duo, really. As, aside from that, that synchronicity that you mentioned, I think, Patrick, lighting cigarettes at the same time. And matching tattoos. Matching tattoos. Uh, uh, there's a scene where two women speak at the same time and say the same thing. And I think Troy Duffy has a... a kind of a, a preoccupation with this, uh, this synchronicity. He thinks it's cool. He thinks that, that, um, adds a visual, you know, dynamic somehow. But, um, yeah, that, that would have been, that would have been interesting, but we got something a little, little bit less than what the original Miramax would have been. In the film, does it mention that they're twins? No, I didn't get that. No. I read that after the fact, I think. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think, cause I, I knew that they were sort of fraternal twins, so, so non-identical twins. Yeah. But I thought there was the, the only thing that we got visually that. is the, the tattoo yeah. on the neck. Yeah. Of, is it, is it the Virgin Mary, I think? And then they've got so, matching yeah. tattoos of Veritas and, uh, Akitas, Truth and Justice yeah. on their hands that, that kind of, uh, Bonds them uh, t- together, really. I mean, my main problem is that I can't tell the difference between the two. I don't know which one's which most of the time. They both play them in exactly the same way. I mean, I, I think in terms of they, they are just one character, and I think that one character. There are entertaining lines. The the uh, the way that they sort of 
you know, wonder, you know, um, which is, yes, yeah, stupid fine rope, you know, things along those <laughs> lines. I, I, it, when they're yeah. bantering with each other, they, they both sound the same. It's almost like a person having a conversation with themselves. But it, I mean, it does make me laugh. It, it is, it's pleasant enough. Um, but it's, it's nothing more than that, really. If you're going to rip off Tarantino, rip off the Gecko Brothers. And yeah. Do it, yeah, do yeah. it that way. I mean, have, have one of them be a complete maniac. Yeah. Or have one of them be devoutly religious and just have them polar opposites and, and, you know, play off each other. I'd have liked to have seen one that was more religious. I think that would have helped considerably take forward some of the themes. They'd all obviously thought, thought about, but just didn't know what to do with. There any more conflict between themselves. And, and even Rock, Rocco doesn't add too much conflict. Just he creates a little problem for them halfway through when it, when it's that shit getting done and then it become, Oh, I mean, the final third is shouty chaos, right? And then the, the, the thing that really bothered me from it, from an acting point of view in this as well is like Defoe's character kind of gets the bum deal at the end and he is the most interesting and successful character in the film, really. But then we switch our attention to the final third back to the brothers and Il Duce and for their, um, finale or their conclusion and Defoe's character just stands by and watches and allows it. it it's not um I don't know I don't like that story arc if we'd had Willem Defoe um actually go the other way so you've had him in the film wrestling with his conscience but then at the end he's he's got to say stop the courtroom execution that is the step too too far and sort of, I don't know, a, a Mexican standoff between them and Willem Dafoe, you would have, you would have maybe had quite a tense ending. The ending is, hey, murder's great. Let's just let them get on with it. And that there's, there's nothing difficult for the audience there. It, it's, it's almost like you, you either agree or you don't agree. Now you will receive us. Would you not ask for your poor? Oh, you're hungry. We do not want your tired and sick. It is your corrupt, we claim. It is your evil that will be sought by us. With every breath, we shall hunt them down. Each day, we will spill their blood till it rains down from the skies. Do not kill. Do not rape. Do not steal. These are principles which every man of every faith can embrace. These are not polite suggestions. These are codes of behavior. And those of you that ignore them will pay the dearest cost. There are varying degrees of evil. We are due lesser forms of filth, not to push the bounds and cross over into true corruption, into our domain. But if you do, one day you will look behind you and you will see we three. And on that day, you will reap it. And we will send you to whatever God you wish. Um, I was thinking for a lot of the film we when they start getting really into the the righteous murdering especially towards the end where it's quite uncomfortable <laughs> because they really <laughs> do just execute that dude um it made me think a lot of troy duffy stuff um while we're talking about like late 90s miramax troy duffy seems to be almost like a kind of um uh uh like a kind of what's the uh the the, the dorian gray of kevin smith which is a guy who got lucky creating a thing on on the cheap and kind of got discovered. And Kevin Smith seems to enjoy himself with it. And he's created this little universe that he just keeps playing around in. And perhaps as a filmmaker, he really never really progresses. But when he tries to kind of branch out and do something else, it doesn't always work. But um, 
Uh, whereas Troy Duffy again has, has the same thing of he just can't get away from the boondock saints. So he just keeps kind of, but far less successfully having only made two films and having something. But it reminded mm. me of, um, Dogma, the way that, um, Affleck and, um, Matt Damon's characters are, uh, essentially they're avenging angels, right? They're Bartleby and Loki yeah. that have fallen to earth and they're exacting. But again, it seems that in a film where they were just one small part of a bigger tapestry of narrative, that seemed a more successful way of reading it because you have uh, Matt Damon's character is like an agent of chaos. Uh, he wants to exact the revenge. Ben Affleck's character is more kind of resigned and, and angry and sad. And um, there's, it shows that that was in the same year as this, I think as well. So there, there were ways of doing it whereby yeah, you could yeah, have before, the, yeah. the brothers become actual characters. And instead they just become like a kind of unified mouthpiece for the, uncontrolled id of Troy Duffy and his mm. apparent raging boner for uh, religious vengeance. And the thing is, that is what <laughs> makes it fascinating to watch. Like you said, that this is a, this is a guy who is not filtering the thoughts in his head to, uh, <laughs> which, which does put it in the lineage of some of the more fascinating, like completely creator led stuff, which is putting your weirdness on screen, which if nothing else has to be applauded because it makes it more interesting to watch. All right, well, I think we're coming towards the end of our adventure with the Boondock Saints. Do, do you have any favorite scenes, guys? Uh, D- David, I'll, I'll ask you first. There was a firefight! <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I've managed to get that in three times. Copy and paste. Yeah, I, I, I think that I like the way that that's that, um, choreographed. I like the way that Billy Conley is, is often a sort of a spectre in the background. And I, I like how um, Willem Dafoe actually, for the first time, he doesn't get all the details right. And he sort of, you know, while he's talking, you can see six men there when actually there was only one. And it, it, I think I like the music in the scene. I like the way that he's walking through the scene as it's being shot. I thought that was creatively quite an interesting way of, of doing it. And of course, it's, I mean, it's Billy Connolly and Willem Dafoe with lots of shooting around them. How could you not enjoy that? I guess just for sheer, oh, that's what we're doing now. It's, uh, uh, Lady Gremlin, Lady Gremlin, Willem Dafoe turning up and the conversation that he has with the, with the kind of mob bouncer and the phrase primo box is used. <laughs> <laughs> which is the first time i've oh, heard no. that uh that's yeah. that's that's cool i'm educated um and <laughs> uh and the just the bizarre kind of bottom lip kiss which was a thing in the 90s lots of like you know weird sequences gnawing on a bottom lip chewing on the bottom lip i seem to remember that happening to jim carrey possibly in ace ventura i don't remember yes it was yeah uh, yeah. yeah um oh jesus and that was also a film that ended with a reveal of gender shenanigans to much poor taste. Um, but I think it's possibly after Willem Dafoe freaks out in a mirror after he murders the, uh, the, the mafia yeah. guy by shooting him in the, in the, in the neck. And he has like a real mm. strange moment, which feels like it was telegraphed in from another film. And that's enjoyable because you realize at this point, it's like, I don't know. I don't know what you're doing. I'm really, really off the beat track here. <laughs>
Shall we be dogs sentry over? As entertainment. Sorry, baby. Tonight is the night we shit our heads. We hit the fan in there. What's it? Fucking Pius came in. He's always sending us three more bucks. There's a good bit in Overnight um, referencing uh, Biggin's favorite scene um, where uh, he's he's directing uh, Defoe and Defoe's got the two guns and um, oh, yeah. and, and, and and Willem Defoe goes, well, uh, how, how does the scene end? And then Troy Duffy <laughs> goes, oh, well, it ends with, uh, it ends when I call cut. <laughs> and that's the, that's the, the extent of the direction he got. I think it's just look cool with two guns and... Uh, you know, he, he handles it. I think it's great. Also, if someone had told me at the beginning that I would get a, an upskirt of uh, Willem Dafoe in this movie, I would be probably more eager to see it. But uh, it's it's a peculiar moment. But uh, all that bathroom stuff and the making out with the doorman. And, but yeah, honorable mentions. Uh, Wags. Yeah, I think they're my honorable, <laughs> honorable. mentions as well. <laughs> Dishonorable. It's, it's just Defoe. Defoe steals the show in this film, and and my favourite mm. stuff is every time he's on screen. I, I like the unpredictability and what he's. I like seeing that he's kind of enjoying himself, experimenting and acting and doing what he wants. Um, there is something in those scenes when he's uh, dissecting what's happened from the crime scene point of view that does hold your interest. Um, they somewhat negated in the second and third one by then showing us uh, it doesn't quite it's awfully repetitive but Defoe Def- just hold your attention I like how manic he is and begins his favourite scene tie loose shirt loose and just after that I've no idea what Defoe's doing to be honest and I, I'm the disappointment in where he goes at the end is like because I'm actually quite drawn to him um my favourite one, it probably is the first one as well, Matt, uh, the alleyway. Mm. Uh, because as an introduction goes, and I did scoff at the kind of, the, the Gary Oldman, Leon, listening to classical music thing, oh, for fuck's sake, come on, yeah. don't be so on the nose. But I think Willem Dafoe does excellent work <laughs> in a, in, with what he's got and what we know that he's dealing with. Um, that's, yeah. If you got, I was going to say we've got any least favourite scenes, but I think we'll be here for a while. Um, right. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Hang on. I think I do. Uh, no, we've, we've talked about some of them. Like, um, it, the, the, the meat packing thing is just the meat packing thing. Shit. Uh, every, all yeah. of those bed, uh, in their apartment scenes when the girls come to kill the cat. I, I just think that is utter chaos. And I said to you offline, I think when he's in the, um, the confessional, uh, in the church and there's guns, the priest's head, guns, Rocco's head. I, I don't know what it is. I watched it twice. I can't work out what is going on. I can't work out why Defoe comes out drunk and Rocco sees him. They're in the same fucking vicinity and he goes there mm. and I don't know what the drive or the, the, the wants or the arc is for any of them at that point. And I don't know. I don't know whether I'm, I'm kind of saying this more on a point of, am I missing something? Was I just like not paying attention properly or I think they, does anyone uh, they, have the same? Yeah. I think they knew they needed that scene because the, the, the film has kind of split our attention across a little. And what's unusual is that, so they, they coalesce quite quickly, which is that you have the, the, the early part is very choppy and then you have the toilet drop and then they kind of, they split uh, and then they, they come together and they have the first scene together in the in the um 
in the police station where you find out that the, that the two brothers can speak all the languages and uh, he's very impressed by them and that's when they have their big decision and they split out and then Defoe is suddenly baffled that somebody is really competently murdering all of these gangsters throughout town, forgetting that he just met two extremely smart kids <laughs> who just killed two gangsters. Uh, and then so they, they knew they needed the the kind of, I think Matt, you kind of nailed it where it's like he's, it's, he's got one script, he's read one script, but he's seen a few films and then he's got ideas on bar mats. And maybe this is him trying to structure it so that they come back together. The characters have to kind of just miss each other so that then you can't spoil them coming back together at the end, but you have to have the near miss. And, but you're right in the, the way the scene itself plays out is extremely visually difficult and spatially difficult, which is possibly a Mm. thing that, a novice director would have issue with, which is like spatial um, awareness. Patrick, you more than anyone having done so many script breakdowns and stuff with directors and previs and storyboarding, you must know like that it can't be easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. So being able to construct characters in a space and understand where they are in relation to each other, there are some really basic moments where he can't do it. There's the the awful N-word joke it's three it's three people in a room which shouldn't be that difficult but i run jeremy's eyeline rocco's eyeline are yes. so off god we haven't that... even mentioned velvet ron jeremy have we? Oh, fuck. oh yeah no we probably shouldn't because it's it's another heavy cancellation all right thank you chaps i think we're getting into our final thoughts just with your final thoughts i have a little question to to address while we're discussing it is a film like this got made in the 90s from that No Try Miramax project, Harvey Weinstein, you know, greenlighting a script. Do you think something like this could be made again in today's day and age in the same sort of rags to riches, first time writer, not a film student, filmmaker, make a film now that would get such notoriety and everything? Um, in your, in your final thoughts. And sorry, I haven't prepped you for that, but Biggins, this is, your first time with this, so I'm going to go to you first for your final thoughts on the film, please. Sure. So, I mean, I, I think that one of the reasons why it did find an audience, and maybe it's not a, a, a massive reason, but I think it is something to consider, is that even though it was made and released, sorry, at the time of the Columbine Massacre, where it just it couldn't find an audience, it was not appropriate, in the time that it did find an underground audience was sort of post 9-11, where America very much was in the mood for revenge to a certain extent. And I, I think in that climate, it, it perhaps the, the, um, attitudes expressed, the capital punishment that was sort of really being thrust down your throats. Americans were sort of more open to receiving that message. Uh, in terms of whether or not a film like this could be, um, made again i think yeah i mean if anything it should be easier because of digital filmmaking it it, it's it's much easier to kind of get a a film that can be distributed and quicker than you know all, all the difficulties that you've got to go through to today in terms of would that film be anything like the boondock saint no i mean as i say the the boondock saint is a guy's passion project it's it's mad it's punk and if you're going to get a repeat of that it's it's going to be 
a guy or a girl's passion project, they've got to bring their own madness to it. And by default, that should be a very different film. So the next Boondock Saints will be ripping on, ripping off something else that was incredibly popular with added in madness. That's you know, it, it, it's someone who's not a film student that won't bring their own uh, that won't bring their own ways that they have been taught about it. But we we will see other bonkers, weird underground films. Uh, it's just going to happen. Do you recommend the film to people? To our listeners, begins. Yeah. Because look, I mean, if you you believe that every one person has got a film in them, every one person could write a screenplay and have a go at putting something together. This is testament to that. You might not like it, but you'll you'll totally understand that if you've got passion and creativity and some teeny bit of understanding about film, you can do it. You know, you, this guy did it. And it, it works in its own way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think people could learn a lot from this film. And even though it's not a great film, sometimes you have to see shit art to understand that you yourself can emulate that. And maybe you'll see that and think, I could do better. Um, De- Devlin, how about you, mate? That was actually a, a, a very persuasive uh, um, argument to, for, the, <laughs> for the film. I, I must admit, when I watched it, I was not mega into it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I had, I was familiar with it because of the documentary, which I love. Um, I love the documentary. I love how bitter the documentary is because it is clearly directed by two guys who are in his circle, who are cast out. You see them be cast out from the circle within the film. So clearly you are, you are seeing a, um, a version of this guy, which is from the perspective of two people who would have good reason to stitch him up. However, he's stitching himself up with his own words and actions. Sure, it's edited to, in a way that makes him look probably more obnoxious than he is in real life, but he still clearly was, at least at that time, an asshole. But, um, you, you still can't help but admire that sort of moxie of, uh, that dude backed himself. Uh, and, and he stuck, he stuck with the thing despite the fact that it was shit canned by one of the bigger studios at the time. And, and dragged it into production through sheer force of will by the looks of it. And, um, the film itself, because I didn't see it at the time, so I think we all have the same thing, which is you're a little more forgiving of, uh, uh, the dodgier content of films when you saw them at the time and you remember the context of the time that you can, I think Patrick, we had the same thing when we talked about the Monster Squad. We had a little discussion towards a scene right at the start where there was an F bomb dropped and it was at the time seen as quite playful. Uh, and when you go back, it's, it, it's, if you weren't watching it as a kid and you haven't internalized it and you can't kind of carry your own personal growth along with society's growth with you, you end up just running into the roadblock of a thing which was apparently okay at the time and now 22 years later has there there are a couple of moments in there where um it it crosses the line for for probably most audiences um uh the the basic premise of it is is mad enough the fact that um it we are essentially advocating the murder of bad people based on what these two lads seem to think is 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 evil and i found it fascinating that the film didn't have much moral quandary about that whatsoever that is a really interesting concept to just uh just go with that to to sort of 
to to take that that basic premise and just say, yeah, no, this this is an established good. These guys are doing good. This is like a superhero movie. They are they are doing the literally the Lord's work. So that's a really bizarre concept to get on board with. Um, it's fascinating to see a guy who not only made this thing off his own bat uh, without film school and without any experience, but also seemed to angrily reject the idea of educating himself about how to make a film. That I guess is a slightly different thing to not having experience. You can see this is, this was a, a thing at the time, right? This is like a nineties idea of like, nah, fuck it, do it yourself. Film schools are conformity factories. Mm. Whereas I think probably the, 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 the general idea is like, if you learn how to do something properly, you can then learn how to subvert it. It's like, it's, it's usually better to have a basic grounding in how to construct a scene so that then when you want to go off and you want to become a, a, a Kubrick or whoever has a completely different way of putting films together, you, you know how to construct a scene. It's just that you've chosen to kind of go beyond it. But it is also fascinating seeing a dude just, just put the camera where he wants to put the camera. If the guys want to come in and start screaming next to a sink, that's what he's going to shoot. <laughs> and he, let the madness dictate the film. And I find that very interesting. So it's very baggy and kind of shocking in places. And the central moral story of it obviously is not one that I agree with whatsoever, but you know, I don't feel like morality has to always come into play on these films. You can watch a film, be offended by it, but still watch it. How about you, Matt? Wags's question first. I don't think it's made in 2021. Uh, I think thematically, it would still be interesting and, and could be made by a big studio. But uh, as uh, Biggins touched upon, the idiosyncrasies of it would not be there. It wouldn't be this version of it. And it wouldn't be a Troy Duffy film. Um, and I really love that sentiment, Biggins, about, um, you know, everyone's got a film in them. I think that's that's really made me see it quite differently a similar thing happened on romper stomper when you talked about shakespeare i was like oh i'm completely wrong it's a shakespearean tragedy and i just retracted a lot of the stuff i was thinking but um i think uh there are perhaps better examples of it uh kevin smith's um uh, clerks or um uh, rick linklater's slacker or maybe el mariachi if you're looking at a technical perspective i mean there are other films that you could do the same thing and, and look at in terms of that but i really like that that sentiment uh so yeah I, I can't recommend it on its own merit but i'd like to recommend it as part of a double bill with overnight because i think it is a fascinating story um i, I felt like troy duffy as a character is more interesting than the characters that he writes um so yeah as a as a fascinating cautionary tale for filmmakers i'd I'd recommend it as a double bill with with overnight. So yeah, thanks for picking it, Biggins. It was an enjoyable uh, watch and chat. Uh, Wags, how about you? Rewatching it last January when I was drunk, I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, this is great. This reminds me of being a teenager, and I remember why I watched it drunk. And then sober, I I don't know. There was a few bits that um, very much lost my interest. Um, and with Matt, I didn't get the humour of it. Apart from Rocco's balaclava, that was the only real laugh I got from the film, which, which did tickle me. I, and I did feel a, a proper disconnect to our main two characters, um, which is a problem. Um, if they're supposed to be the heroes, the, the, the eponymous boondock saints, I, it doesn't work, um, which is a problem. And 
I I now look at the film with a, as a lost opportunity type thing. Wouldn't it have been great if Troy Duffy had sold his script to to a better hand to direct it at the time in the nineties? And I imagine what we could have got there with um, Wahlberg and who, who's the other one? Matt, sorry, Stephen Dorff. Stephen Dorff, yeah, Dorff at the time. I think we'd have done a far better job and it would have added some charisma and that conflict is lacking from those characters, which is a problem. Um, I, there are bits in it I like though. Biggins, I, I, I'm with you. I, I like, I like, um, Billy Connolly with a cigar shooting and, yeah. and I kind of like some of the visuals. We, we haven't spoken about the cinematographer and I don't remember, recall who it is, but the bits in it that look quite good. Like, especially from an action point of view, and to say a first-time director is shooting action quite well, it, I think it's quite impressive. Um, and I, I had to look up the special effects guys because I was very impressed, Matt, along with you. Uh, Michael Kavanagh, he did a special effects for American Psycho, and he worked together with John uh, McGillivray. Uh, on existence as well, which is cool. That's effects in there. Mm. And I wanted to shout them out right now because I, all the squib hits, the bullet hits, all the practical effects and everything. It's no mean feat at the moment. Uh, it, it, like then and now and to look good. The blood looks great. The hits do. There's guns firing. There's a cool slow mo shot of, um, Connor Flannery catching a, bullet case that I really like in here mm. as well. So there are start the top shots I spoke about in, in the the toilet going over the edge. Love all that. So there is lots of merit I do take from it. Biggins, yeah, again. Everyone's got a film in them. And I agree with that. And this was a film at the time that did capture me when you recommended to me at 16. And we were wanting film students at the time. And this is showing like what potential you can have. And I still hold on to that from a recommending point of view. The double bill is a bigger recommendation than the single film on its own. But for, for, for budding filmmakers to watch this and overnight and to learn about going for it and the type of person you have to be that you have to really believe in yourself and not give up. I'm all for that. Uh, absolutely. So a very interesting conversation. I'm glad we spoke about it today. Um, where can we watch this? I think because you may have even touched upon this in the, in the middle. It's not available to stream at the minute in the UK, is it? No, I've got the, um, the Blu-ray version of it. So it's, oh, you went oh, Blu-ray. Fancy yeah. Fans. Yeah. Can you tell me the extras that are on it? Uh, yeah. So it's got outtakes. It's great. Uh, it's got deleted scenes. Uh, it's got a trailer, and the, I mean, the, the highlight for me is the Billy Connolly audio commentary. Yeah. Um, and tra- Billy commentary. There's a, there's a, there's a <laughs> Troy Duffy commentary as well. <laughs> so, I mean, beyond that, I mean, the, the outtakes are only for a couple of minutes. I mean, it, it, Billy Connolly makes me laugh quite a lot in them. Um, but it's, it, it's more just to, to see it, you know, in pristine quality and, um, to be able to lend it to people because I know I'm going to have conversations with people and they'll mention the Boondock Saints yeah. and they'll never have heard it. And I'll be able to say, <clears throat> brace yourself. It is currently streaming in Korea uh, on uh, Netflix. And uh, in America, uh, it's streaming on Prime Video, Hoopla, Pluto TV. Tubi, <laughs> Pluto TV, what the fuck? Voodoo. I don't know what these things are, but uh, American listeners can can tune in there and you can rent it in england on amazon and google okay. and- you can currently um rent it uh digitally off amazon prime you can buy it outright 
right now i don't know if uh when it, i don't know when you're listening to this people from the future after this is edited but i bought it uh, i have the dvd but the dvd quality is not especially great uh you can uh, buy it outright in hd off amazon prime for £1.99 right now if you want to watch it again and again and again and again <laughs> <laughs> is overnight sorry we spoke about um boondock snacks is overnight available to to stream i believe overnight is only available on the uk dvd i don't ever okay. i don't believe it ever uh was reissued on blu-ray i guess because there's I not much point because it was shot on very cheap video cameras i couldn't even find a uk dvd when i was looking for which is one of the reasons why i've not seen it i i could only find it as a, an american import and it, it seemed quite pricey. So I think you guys managed to get it from eBay. When I had a look, it wasn't around anymore. Um, I think maybe there was one, again, oversee import, which would take a long time and it was overpriced. So uh, Wags, I, I might just have to borrow it from you. All right, lads, lovely stuff. Biggins, thank you very much for being our guest today and talking to Boondock Saints. Uh, listeners, I hope I've uh, filled in for Galley's very sizable boots okay for you today. Coming up on the Rewind Movie Podcast soon, we've got to finish our Roska series with Fatal Attraction. Galley's picked Donnie Darko coming up. <laughs> yeah, not for Donnie Darko. Um, uh, <laughs> Alien... Alien Resurrection, uh, Erection, Fatal Attraction. Uh, no, um, that'll be coming up soon for our LVRMP series. And we'll have another guest spot with Lev joining us in a few weeks as well. We'll see what film he picks. Um, if you like, please uh, share and subscribe. That'd be great online. And thank you very much today. Um, hey, fuck ass, get me a beer. It's been Patrick in Cardiff. Well, I don't cross the road if you can't get out of the kitchen. Because it's Devlin in London. Kinda makes me feel like river dancing. It's Matt <laughs> in South Korea. We find a spot we got us an away team. It's been David from London. Thank you very much, guys, and we'll see you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Whoa!